Football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. What's up, Jordan? Episode number 46 for us. We're excited. We're going to be talking with our buddy Sam Spangler of KHON2 News here in a little bit, former University of Hawaii pitcher, also pitched professionally in the Minnesota Twins organization. So uh, he was covering election night in Honolulu last night. He was at Kapolehale where it went late into the evening as they stayed open for the people who were in line after the cutoff so that they could all vote. Uh, we'll get some of his thoughts on election night in Hawaii and, and also talk a little baseball uh, as his former teammate at UH, Colton Wong, uh, was able to uh, secure his second straight gold glove honor along with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, a guy who was a guest on this podcast, the third baseman for the uh, Texas Rangers. Just a few weeks ago, we were able to talk with him, and, and he spoke about how, how important and big and how much of an honor a gold glove would be to him, and he realized it on election day. Interestingly enough, I'm not sure why they picked that day to pass those awards out. But, you know, we usually start off the podcast with a little warm-up, uh, you know, what we like to call the pregame. It's kind of usually a, a silly topic, you know, something we can just uh, moisten the palate to a little bit when we talk about, like, sports debate and conversation. But it just feels difficult to do that. Right? It feels like it would just be a little trite to go into this episode uh, with that same strategy just because of the fact that, you know, we have this huge election and, and we have all of this news making that is going on politically here, uh, not only locally, but across the country. And we're not going to talk candidates here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I did feel like we should at least address the elephant in the room uh, and the fact that, you know, we have seen record turnout in terms of voting. And we have also seen a little resistance to all of the votes being counted. And again, we're not going to talk about candidates here, uh, but just wanted to get your opinion on what you have seen with regard to how we're treating this national count and maybe what we've seen even in terms of turnout locally. Yeah, I think locally, you know, it's, it was a pleasant surprise to see so many people turn out even just yesterday, uh, you know, not necessarily at the polls because we've kind of gone away from that here in Hawaii uh, to, to an all, vote all by mail. And you can still go to these voter service centers. And a lot of people still decided they were going to go in person yesterday. And, and we talked to Sam a little bit about that coming up, but just how willing and enthusiastic people were to wait in line <laughs> for hours on end, some of them to, to go ahead and, and exercise their civic duty, which I, I think is awesome. Voter turnout here in Hawaii is as high as it has been in a long time. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. And, and different things will motivate people, right? Whether it's top of the ticket presidential election, whether it's, you know, some of your local races, you know, for folks on Oahu, obviously a, a, a large and important mayoral race on the Big Island, same deal there. So whatever motivated people, uh, it was just nice to see such a large turnout here in Hawaii. And then nationally, you can kind of say a lot of the same things, right? I mean, people, people came out. People came out, whether it was by mail, whether it was absentee, whether it was there at the polls day of. Uh, you know, I, I think it was encouraging to see people taking advantage of the process. And is it a perfect process? No. Uh, is it as good as we have, you know, kind of around the globe? I'd like to think so, right? And, and I think the the important part about that is you kind of got to let the process play out and whether it's counting votes is, you know, as long as it takes to make sure we get the thing right. Heck, we experienced that a little bit in Hawaii last night, right? We expected to get a count at seven o'clock. It didn't come till like almost midnight. Uh, but the fact of the matter was it was because people were still voting. People were in line. And, and you know what, if we have to wait a little bit because there are more people sending them in or, or getting in line, as long as they made the deadlines mandated by their jurisdictions, like I, that's okay with me. You know, that's the, the more people that vote, the better we're off. I totally agree with that. Regardless of what candidate or party you may support, I think we can all or at least should all agree that the most democratic, patriotic thing we can do is to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to voice their opinion via their right to vote. Like that is at, at 
the core of it. That is what this country was built on. That is what our government is built on. Uh, and that is really like the one true civic duty and right that we all as citizens have. And so I think we should all agree that let's just count everything, right? And, and, and we'll, we'll live with the results. We'll adjust to the results, whichever way it goes. Uh, but that confuses me when it seems as though from various corners, we're getting resistance to that concept. Because that concept to me is like, all right, that is about as American as it gets. And if you're against that, or if you're trying to oppose or create some kind of obstacle to that, that doesn't feel very patriotic, in my opinion. We all, the, the campaigns are to get out and vote, right? They don't tell you who to vote for, but just, just get out there and vote. And, and the way we can make that more inclusive, I think, is it's only, only going to lead to progress, whichever way you want it to lead. But we got we to gotta, we get as many people out there voting as possible. Yeah, and so to those who did, uh, congrats, kudos to you. Uh, record turnouts on so many fronts, and, and that's a beautiful thing to see. All right, as mentioned, we're going to be talking with Sam Spangler a little bit later about some of this election stuff, uh, also get into some sports stuff. Uh, definitely want to get his take on the analytics evolution in professional baseball as a guy who played professionally, a left-handed pitcher, and obviously the pitcher position uh, might be the one that's impacted the most by all of these analytics, as we saw in the World Series between the Dodgers and the Rays. But let's get into the more traditional aspect of this podcast, and that's the sports talk. And we start with our game time. And the rainbows get roughed up. The UH football team went down to Wyoming last weekend, Jordan, in Laramie, 31-7. Cowboys, Xavier Valade ran for 163 yards and two scores as Wyoming accumulated 281 yards on the ground. Hawaii's offense appeared somewhat limited, just 223 total yards mustered up. Chevin Cordero at quarterback had a solid debut the first week at Fresno State, at least debut to this season. Was 11 of 26, though, against Wyoming for 110 yards. Gave the ball away twice, an interception and a fumble. Was sacked five times. So the Warriors now one and one. I think most people would have taken that if you had offered them. All right, we have two road games to start at Fresno, at Wyoming. Uh, if you had offered people, all right, we're going to win one of those. We're going to split those road games. People would have been down with that. But you have New Mexico coming to town here this week for the Rainbow Warriors' first home game. Uh, and what questions do you maybe now have? What questions may have arisen from that loss in Wyoming? Yeah, you kind of – for me, it's it's balancing sort of – you know, how hard do you look at this game as a, as a way to foretell the future a little bit? And how much do you kind of just chalk it up to, hey, look, it was a trip on a Friday night into the mountain time zone, into the altitude of Laramie and cold temperatures. And these things just kind of happen to Hawaii teams, right? We've seen good Hawaii teams go on the road and get shellacked over the court. I mean, you go back to Rolo's first year, right? They lose, what, by 55 or something like that at San Diego State, win the Hawaii Bulls. Even some of the June Jones teams, I always remember that game where they gave up 70 at Fresno. Uh, that was the year they went to the Hawaii Bowl and won the Hawaii Bowl. And so good Hawaii teams have gone and gotten embarrassed on the road. And for this, this game in particular, it's not like they were out of it, right? I mean, they didn't get waxed by 50-plus. They wore down. They wore down in a game that the offense didn't play particularly well, that the defense gave up a ton rushing the football, but found a way to keep them in the game. And so it's hard for me to sort of rectify, right? Do we read too much into it? How much do we just chalk it up to, you know, this has happened continuously in the history of Hawaii football. And of course, a lot of fans will be like, well, we got to figure out a way to get it done on the road. It's tough. It's tough sure. to win a football game on the road in college football. Uh, but I think the biggest question mark coming out of the game has to deal with what we perceive to be the biggest strength of this team, and it is the offensive line for this squad. The passing game has not quite gotten going like we expected it to. Uh, I think Chevin Cordero had some trouble with the cold, particularly early on with gripping the football, getting the ball out. Uh, but they've given up near double-digit sacks in two games. Um, again, Cordero hasn't really gotten the quick passing game going. And so that, that is, to me, my biggest concern is there. We, we knew they were going to be a little light defensively up front. We'll see if maybe they get a little more multiple as opposed to just sticking with that three-down lineman approach. Uh, but the big question mark to me is that offensive line. Uh, and will be a big test to see if they can kind of shore up some of these issues on Saturday against New Mexico. Yeah, it felt like a snowball effect, and obviously it's fitting because of the cold weather there in Laramie for that game, but it really did feel that way because you're right. It was 10-7 Hawaii trailing at halftime. The defense did a good job of, of bending but not totally breaking against that Wyoming offense, and let's be honest, Wyoming on the lines, both offensively and defensively, they are monstrous. They are enormous, and so it does call into question, I think, to your point, uh, the fact that this defensive scheme, which more often than not 
features three down linemen, uh, and what they try to do is maybe show or expose certain blitz looks. Um, and it, it looked as though as the game wore on, uh, they just started getting pushed off the ball. And so that is something that maybe has to be reckoned with, something that has to be addressed. And remember, that was kind of a question with the defensive lineup that we saw via the first depth charts that were released where, all right, you saw a lot of guys who were previously linebackers listed at least as D ends or rushing ends on the line. And they're being moved around quite a bit, but you also saw safeties moved up to linebackers. And so they tried to create more speed, but maybe giving up a little size and physicality. And I think Wyoming, as that game went on, exposed that. You're right. I don't think we're wrong to expect more from this very experienced offensive line. Again, Wyoming big. They're physical. There were a lot of expectations on this Wyoming team going into this season. Most experts felt like they were going to be able to at least nip at the heels of Boise State, the perennial power in the Mountain West Conference in that Mountain Division. Uh, and so I think we maybe shortchanged Wyoming a little bit too because they had a freshman quarterback starting because of injury uh, and they were coming off of a loss in the first week. Uh, and so maybe we shortchanged Wyoming just a little bit in terms of the expectations. That's a good team. Uh, you're also right about some of these past discrepancies, these, these past losses of somewhat embarrassing magnitude on the road for Hawaii uh, in previous seasons. And the problem with that is a lot of those losses were on national TV, just like this one was on FS1. And so you would just like to maybe put your best foot forward in a more effective and consistent fashion. Uh, but that said, you're right. Th these kinds of losses do happen. I do think that the circumstances staying on the road, I do think that the conditions all played a factor are we creating an excuse for this team I don't think so I don't think Todd Graham would want to do that either but at the same time you add all of that up and it makes for a very tall assignment for this team to be able to stay on the road for that duration of time play at altitude play in chilly conditions at night and be able to uh, sustain yourself endurance wise and otherwise against this very physical Wyoming team so next up for Hawaii is New Mexico coming here. New Mexico, an interesting story because of the fact that they've had some issues in terms of practice. Their first game against Colorado State got canceled. They're coming off of a loss at a relocated game against San Jose State. Last week, they journeyed to Vegas to basically bubble there before they head out to Hawaii. Uh, so this is going to be kind of a, a, an interesting matchup as well. New Mexico, I think, in the much uh, more difficult position, obviously, having to travel under those circumstances. Uh, but you anticipating a bit of a bounce back showing maybe for the rainbow warriors i am i am I, they're two and a half touchdown favorites at this point uh so a lot of the prognosticators feel like it as well uh i think the caliber of opponent has a lot to do with it right i, I do think that wyoming team is a lot better than this new mexico team we're going to be facing and they've dealt with all kinds of things off the field as you've pointed out so yeah i, I do anticipate for this away team first game back at home right it's going to have to feel good to get out there at aloha state we know chevin cordero has played really well at home in particular um, versus maybe some of his road performances throughout his young career so far. Uh, I, I expect a bounce back performance by, by really the team as a whole. And I think, I, I repeat, I think most fans, if you had told them, all right, two road games to start this very unique season, they're going to split them and go one-on-one. -on -one. I think most fans would have been okay with it. Maybe they would have wanted a bit of a better showing on the final scoreboard at Wyoming. But one-on-one -on -one coming into this game, uh, I think under the circumstances, uh, you'll take that for sure in most instances. All right, we move on now to the pros. Tua time. It was Tua time in Miami. Tua Tonga-Vailoa taking the field for his first professional start for the Dolphins, and they would enjoy a 28-17 win over Aaron Donald and the Rams. Tua's starting debut bolstered by an incredible performance by the Dolphins in other phases, right? Defense and special teams. They're scoring touchdowns. All of that stuff basically helping Tua out, giving him a big assist there because for his part, he needed only really to manage the game. Finished with 93 yards passing on 12 of 22 throwing and a touchdown. Touchdown. He also fumbled the rock away on his first drive. Your impressions of Tua's first professional start? What a wild game, right? You and I were talking a bit about this as this game unfolded. It was crazy. Just absolutely crazy how it went from 7-7 seven, seven with the Rams first and goal, and then all of a sudden the, the Dolphins score a fumble return. They get a punt return. They get another one on the doorstep. Uh, if you're grading Tua, I think in his performance, it's an incomplete. Like, it just it wasn't on the field long enough to really get a good sense. A little shaky start which I don't think was too unexpected. Maybe a little, get a little bit of the nerves out, right? Uh, a nice close encounter with Aaron Donald to get things started uh, you know, right out of the gate that led to the fumble. Obviously not ideal. The one pass that he had to make was a 
beautiful dime, put it on the money, right, for the touchdown throw. 12 of 22, less than 100 yards. It's, it's not all that impressive. But again, he wasn't on the field a ton. They weren't great on third down. I think they started to get into a rhythm maybe third quarter, middle part of the game where they got him on the move, got him out of the pocket. Uh, so, I, I, again, a, a, an incomplete grade for me, but I will say the encouraging part, he took some shots. He was hit mm-hmm. a few times, right, especially early on uh, and seemed to be fine. Uh, and that was, to me, the biggest indicator. Okay, you know, is he going to look comfortable out there? Did more and more as the game went on. Uh, but from just a physical health standpoint, he looked good. He looked fine. Uh, and, and that's big for this Dolphins team that's got a really good defense and and all of a sudden they're right on the heels of the Bills in that AFC East yeah Dolphins defense actually tops in the league in points allowed they're averaging 18.6 points per game so I think that's another takeaway is the Dolphins are actually just kind of good uh, and so maybe that was part of the motivation to make this move to Tua Tonga-Vailoa in his rookie year but what's interesting is this other story that's being written about and even discussed on some of the sports platforms out there is the fact that the Dolphins have the Texans first and second round picks coming up and there was a report on ESPN.com that part of the reason and the Dolphins may have gone to Tua at this time, even with Ryan Fitzpatrick playing well and the Dolphins coming off of two straight wins, is that they want to see what they have with him because there might be some consideration, depending on the final evaluation here of Tua, uh, to maybe, if they are in a a prime position in the draft, to think about drafting another of these top-rated quarterbacks, namely Trevor Lawrence. So this is kind of an interesting and unexpected turn to the Tua story being talked about being discussed not sure how much is actually you know attached to this officially uh, but it does kind of change the 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 tenor a little bit and and maybe even applies a tad bit more pressure on Tua to to pick up his performance especially uh, with the way Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert and some of those guys are playing yeah and and look the the Dolphins are going to have to do their due diligence right And, and it's almost as much a physical test as anything right hey do we have a healthy guy that can go out there and do the job you're right uh and I think you know at least so far the health check mark uh you know saw some nice flashes from him some of his ability some of his strengths that we knew getting the ball out quick accuracy uh decision making and and now he'll get a chance to to really lead this team that all of a sudden the expectations continue to grow Dolphins go up against Kyler Murray and the Cardinals this week. That'll be a fun one to watch. We mentioned Trevor Lawrence, and he is currently out for Clemson. He is the star of this college football season. He is the expected number one overall pick uh, if he does decide ultimately to come out after this is junior season. Uh, But he was out this past weekend against Boston College after a positive COVID test. He's going to miss. It was announced by Dabo Sweeney this past weekend as well. The showdown with number four Notre Dame this upcoming weekend. That's a huge one in the ACC. You have freshman DJ Uyangalele who threw for 342 yards and two TDs in his place against Boston College. He also ran for a score. This is a guy we saw up close. He played in the Polynesian Bowl. Uh, he is an extremely highly hyped recruit coming out of St. John Bosco where he was the top-rated pro-style quarterback in all of the high school ranks. Uh, if Clemson loses this weekend, though, uh, you know I, I expect Uyangalele to still look poised and play well. He might be a little bit more raw in this his freshman year as at least as compared to Trevor Lawrence in his freshman year. Uh, But that said, if they lose to Notre Dame, how much should that loss be held against them when it comes to the college football playoff? And are we ignoring the fact that Trevor Lawrence has COVID and we should probably be a little more concerned that he also finds his way to good health here uh, as opposed to talking strictly about the football? Right, right. That I mean, that should be the priority number one, right? <laughs> I mean, this is this could potentially be a serious illness, and and so far, I think the reports are that that you know he's doing okay. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where we've gotten in college football, right? We treat COVID like it's part of the injury report, yeah, uh, which is you know troubling and a whole other conversation in itself. For Clemson, you know, it's really interesting to see how the committee is going to view this. Uh, if they do indeed lose to Notre Dame. Because the other side of that conversation is, hey, if Notre Dame knocks off Clemson as a top four team in the country, the, the Irish, that is, they're all of a sudden atop the ACC. They're in the driver's seat to win that conference. And then they become, right, the ACC's sort of crowned representative to get into the playoff. And if Alabama, Ohio State sort of take care of business, you know, what does it look like out of the Pac-12? What does it look like out of the SEC runner-up? Does Clemson have a path back in there? I think it can be forgiving if they lose a close game here or something like that. Uh, But I do also sort of 
buy into like look you look at a team like Ohio State a few years back right when they won the national championship and they were on their third string quarterback by the time the big big 10 championship game around and and they just kept on winning right and there's something to that quarterback depth is part of depth on your football team and it's not like Uyunglele is some slouch right I mean the dude was arguably the top recruit in the country depending on who you ask him and Bryce Brown uh, the young guy who went to Alabama as another quarterback. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's an embarrassment of riches. And so if he goes out and plays like he did against Boston College, you know, you, you can't feel too bad for what Clemson has to deal with in terms of what their depth is like. Uh, but I, I am curious. I think there will be a little forgiveness there, but especially if Notre Dame goes and runs the table, uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah, because then you'd be talking about, are we going to have two ACC teams in there as opposed to what would be more of a traditional expectation of two SEC teams in that college football playoff? But this is a unique year. You have inequity in terms of the amount of games being played by teams in various and respective leagues. Uh, And so this will be a college football playoff selection of teams that will be as subjective as it's ever been, if not more subjective than it's ever been. And so, yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of latitude There'll be a lot of creative license, if you will, when it comes to that decision, because they don't have to follow any kind of computer printout analysis. They don't have to follow any any kind of true calculation because it's impossible to mathematically calculate under these circumstances. So it'll be, you know, we talk a little bit about the uh, eye test. That will maybe be what it primarily comes down to. And so if they look at Clemson, they're like, yeah, they lost one, but they didn't have Trevor Lawrence for that one loss. Uh, they're going to look at that team and be like, all right, that's, that's as good a team as any in the country. So they need to be in. All right, lastly, before we move on to Sam, uh, Colton Wong and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa both win Gold Glove Awards, Jordan. This was kind of thrilling for us. We had Isaiah on the show just a couple of weeks ago. The awards were announced strangely on Election Day. It's the second straight honor for Colton, second baseman for the Cardinals most recently. His option wasn't picked up, so he is at the moment actually a free agent, which is just crazy back-to-back gold glove winner. It's also the first in the career of Rangers third baseman Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. What was your reaction to seeing that news yesterday? Really stoked for those two guys. You know, and obviously we're biased here in Hawaii, but but just knowing how hard both of them have worked, right? And and we we talked to Sam a bit about what Colton went through. The guy was an all-state catcher in high school, played center field to begin his UH career, and then turns himself into a gold glove winning second baseman uh, by the time he gets into major league baseball. And then what Isaiah's gone through, right? And, you know, for those who didn't get a chance to listen to that podcast, obviously we, we really encourage that because he's another guy. He, he caught a ton of games last year, didn't really have a home, has played short, has played all over the diamond, and then he really sort of lobbies for that third base spot, and he backs it up, right? He backs it up. He goes. He becomes the best third baseman in, in the American League. It, just incredible stories for these guys, right, who weren't the biggest recruits necessarily, Um, In the case of Isaiah, obviously Colton a little bit bigger, but, you know, not a big guy of any stretch of the imagination physically um, and and to to be two of the best defenders in all of baseball. I I mean, just regardless of position, I mean, amongst the best of the gold glove winners, even really just a testament to their their work and dedication and, and a snippet into the amount of talent that we have here in Hawaii. All right, time now for the Domino's Hawaii main topping. We have Sam Spangler of KHON2 News, as mentioned, former University of Hawaii pitcher, pitched professionally in the Minnesota Twins organization for a couple of years. Uh, and we'll get into all of that stuff with him. He was covering the elections last night. He stayed up really, really late. So let's go ahead and play that interview with Sam Spangler. Hey, what's up, Sam? Good to see you, man. Good to talk with you. I have no idea how you are even awake right now. We're recording this uh, podcast at about 9 a.m. Hawaii time. You were up until the wee hours of the morning over there covering the election and the poll at Kapolehale. So how are you doing this? What, what kind of drug are you possibly utilizing here to be awake at this moment? Well, lack of sleep apparently is a drug. I read last night on Twitter while I was awake at like four in the morning that if you stay up 24 hours, it's like having a 0.10 blood alcohol count. So (laughs) I feel like I'm hungover and I didn't have a single drink last night. So I think that's valid. Yeah, that was a a wild night. There was a lot going on. I mean, obviously both locally and nationally. So a lot of people had anxiety. I had anxiety about that and then having to work, like all these different moving parts. So it was a wild night. I barely remember any of it. The first thing that I do want to talk to you about is just kind of your reaction and response and perspective on 
what you saw last night, the, the turnout in the vote here locally, uh, certainly at Kapole Hale where they had a few logistical issues in trying to service all of these voters that maybe weren't expected to come in, in such a uh, high mass. Uh, but that said, just what you thought of when you saw all that happening. I was surprised by the enthusiasm of the people who went out to vote and the, the friendliest. You know, we, we had talked throughout the week at KH12 if we were going to do a story about potential civil unrest. We decided against it because well, our idea was, you know, we don't want to influence something that HPD isn't expecting. And we had talked to HPD. They said they weren't expecting civil unrest. But other places across the country were talking about boarding up windows, et cetera. And when I went to Honolulu Holly and I was asking people in line, you know, how's it going? Everybody was laughing. Everybody was joyous, smiles. They just loved being able to go out and cast their ballot. And I was surprised because these people were waiting in line for an hour and a half. Sometimes I talked to people who were waiting for three and a half hours last night. You know, the, the line snaked out all the way out to the, the parking garage out there. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. You know, you go out there to like City of Lights and stuff like that. And that was the kind of crowd that you saw. But all these people just waiting in line to vote. Um, so I was really impressed with that. You know, it was a lot of young voters that were showing up yesterday. Most of them uh, hadn't registered yet to vote. And that's why they went to go vote in person. But I couldn't believe the turnout. And obviously, the elections officials also couldn't believe the turnout or else they would have had more machines ready to go. So that's why we saw those long lines. Do you have a theory as to maybe why in this particular year there was such a raging enthusiasm for people both older and younger uh, to come out and register in many cases for the first time and vote and even put up with long waits and long lines? What, what is your theory on that if you've constructed one? Well, I was asking people in line last night, why, A, why did you come vote in person? And it was majority was people hadn't registered yet. And what are you coming out to vote for? And it was the presidential election. You know, I asked people about the, the local election. And this is a small sample size and this is anecdotal, but it didn't seem like too many people were very heavily uh, invested in the, the local election that I spoke with last night. It was the presidential election. Obviously, it's been so um, contentious and so divisive that I think it, it spawns a lot of people to even talk about it. And when you have people talking about it, then it sparks more interest. And then so you get more interest in voting. And so people wanted to, to cast their ballots and, and have their opinion heard. And that's the way to do it. So it was really a beautiful thing. You know, you look at the final vote tally for Hawaii just came in this morning, uh, 579,000. And that beats the previous record, which was in 2008 with, you know, Hawaii's own Barack Obama uh, going for president by 122,000 votes. It's just an incredible turnout. Um, so yeah, it, it, was, it was an amazing thing to see, but it was definitely driven by the presidential election. Yeah, Sam, did you get a sense, uh, as you may, it was maybe a small sample size of the folks there kind of doing the in-day or day of in-person voting, but uh, well, just the, the makeup of the folks there? I mean, was it young people, uh, older people? Uh, what was the sense that you got from kind of sampling the crowd there? Yeah, early on in the afternoon, there was a little mixture of everybody, although it was majority of young people. And then as you started to get closer to seven o'clock, that was when the young people came. And I was joking with Joe Moore, like, hey, Joe, I'm a millennial because Joe was complaining about, hey, what, why are all these people waiting till the very last minute to go in there and vote? Now we got to wait to get the first printout. And I was like, Joe, speaking as a millennial, we like to procrastinate. And this is the way we do things. And these are all millennials sitting here in line. You know, there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who just maybe had got off of work and they hadn't registered yet. And they're like, ah, I forgot to vote, but I still want to vote. And so I think it was impressive that those people, instead of coming to the line and seeing that line wrapped around the corner and then snaking down that little lawn into the parking lot, instead of just turning around and heading back, which I didn't see anybody do. Everybody just went and stood in line. And then they made the cutoff at seven o'clock and all those people still got to vote. Yeah, I happened to be watching KHON when Joe asked you, when you and Joe had that exchange, and it was, I'd laughed because myself, knowing that uh, kind of fitting in that age demographic. Uh, maybe it's too soon, but have you heard from sort of the elections officials as to, you know, maybe how they can avoid this in two years if, if we run into a sort of similar setup? Yeah, I, I think, obviously, this is the first year of all mail-in voting, and we didn't see this in the primary. It wasn't an issue. I was down at Honolulu Hale also at the primary, and it was, you know, the last second was people driving up in their cars and running to the drop box and putting their ballots in. It wasn't people coming in to register to vote. That was the issue. So I talked to election officials yesterday, why is this happening? And they said they had no idea to anticipate the mass voter turnout. I think it was like 25,000 people who showed up to vote in person on Oahu on election day. And the 12 days prior to that, where people could have gone in and voted in person if they'd like to, 
they had a very small turnout. There was no weights. There was no lines. So they didn't anticipate this happening. Um, so I think they're learning as they go along, which I completely understand that uh, people procrastinate. And that's basically all you can explain with this is people took until the very last minute to get this done. Especially those stinking millennials. My goodness. Yeah, they, they don't know how to act. <laughs> says the oldest guy here on the zoom meeting um yeah. are you a boomer is that no no no, I'm, no I'm after the boomers thanks i think i'm a gen x is, is that does that sound right maybe i'm in that gen i think x? so yeah 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 but no, we're, so, we're, also, so it's not just millennials it's gen z voting as well so we can blame them we don't have to take all the cracks Jordan. okay Okay, where do we go after Gen Z? Like, we're at the end of the alphabet. Like, do we start getting into symbols and stuff? Like, I'm not really sure how this, how this works. Like, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's the thing, right? People born in 2002 could vote in this election. Like, yeah. born in 2002. It's crazy. Yeah. And the last yeah. person I talked to in line yesterday, it was her first time voting. And I was like, would you do it again? She's like, yeah, it's a great experience. Like, these people waited in line for two hours and they enjoyed it. It's crazy. You know, that's the, the, maybe the effect of COVID and the pandemic is like people just want to get out of the house, even if it's to wait in line at a polling location. They just want to be outside around other people. It's a crazy time we're living in, that's for sure. Uh, obviously, there was a huge motivation due to the presidential election, uh, but one of the larger elections that was voted upon yesterday uh, and we got the results uh, was the Honolulu mayoral race and Rick Blangiardi, uh, who came out victorious there. And what was interesting about that race was it featured two candidates who who were very active in the realm of sports and obviously this being a, a primarily sports podcast you know that's of interest to us that angle of it and it was just kind of interesting to see them utilize their sports experience rick as a former coach at uh as a general manager who helped uh, basically establish the, the modern television coverage of the University of Hawaii athletics program that we still enjoy to this day. Keith Amimiya, who ran the very successful Save Our Sports campaign to fundraise to help at a time where there weren't a lot of available funds for the playing of high school sports and the supporting of high school sports. Uh, and so they called upon that. What was your opinion and, and view of, of how they were able to utilize those previous experiences in, in their respective campaigns? I thought it was very interesting, it, and it speaks to how important sports are here in Hawaii, and I, I'd love to see that. And I, I think even Rick, you can tie, you know, the people I talked to yesterday that were Rick supporters and who were voting for Rick, I, I think they really look at watching his local connection segment on Hawaii News Now. Uh, it created a connection with the, the voters. and. You can't help but look at his broadcasting background when he used to call University of Hawaii football games to deliver his message like that, right? And I think he did fantastic in the debates, and I think that also helped him. So not only the, the sports thing, but the, the broadcasting thing in, involved with sports, I think really, really helped Rick. And um, I, I think as far as Keith goes, you saw the, the huge support from athletes, um, coaches. Dave Shoji was a supporter of his all across the sporting landscape. He had a bunch of mixed martial artists. Um, you know, one of my former teammates, Jared Arakawa, who's a, a pitcher at UH, I actually, I was driving down the street. I was driving down King Street, saw him sign waving one time. And, you know, he's got the mask on, but I could recognize the, the eyes and the hat. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a ton of support from the, uh, the sports community for both. And uh, I thought, you know, fortunately for the city and county of Honolulu, I thought we had two really great candidates. And I think that uh, – you know, the sports world especially knows that because we've known these people forever. So we know what kind of character they have. We know what kind of leaders they are. Um, so I think that was, that was really cool to see from the inside. You get to see a lot of these candidates from just, you know, how we've known them over the years. Yeah, this, this is maybe more of a, of a projection. And, and I know that now that Rick's going to be taking office, he's got a lot of big fish to fry uh, and mm -hmm. a lot of important topics. But from a sports standpoint, do you think there can be something to anticipate from him? Uh, if you're looking at it from like a sports angle, like, hey, we got a, a sports guy in there at Honolulu Hale, you know, can, can we expect something, you know, to come out of that front? You know, I, I think the big one, and there's actually going to be a protest today at Honolulu Hale about youth sports being in tier four of Mayor Caldwell's um, plan to, to reopen. And so I think, you know, Rick being a sports guy, you look at youth sports and you look at a CDC report that came out recently about outdoor sports and the, the lack of spread of COVID-19 in those areas when it's a, a non-contact sport. There's a lot of people clamoring for youth sports to be placed into a different category than tier four, which if you're not familiar, it, it's included in restaurants and bars being to full capacity. 
um, gyms being to full capacity. And so I think you look at youth sports in a totally different regard than some of those things, which seem like a, a much riskier um, activity as far as COVID-19. So I, I think Rick might take a little bit more of a, uh, a friendlier approach to, to youth sports and organize youth sports in that regard. And I think that'd be very important. I talked to a pediatrician about that <clears throat> who said that it, it's really important to kids' mental and physical well-being to, to be out there and playing sports with other kids. And she said, you know, this isn't a small issue. This is very important. She said that she's seen a lot of depression and a lot of weight gain among youths who haven't been able to participate in sports. And I, I think that's a, an important thing to think about. So I think that's something Rick can tackle as well. For those listening on the radio uh, via ESPN Maui and ESPNMaui.com, we're talking with Sam Spangler of KHON2 News. It's interesting because your career arc, you know, with this almost christening as a member of the news media on television here in Hawaii, it's, it's, it's almost not official until you cover an election. Uh, so did that feel like something to you? Like this was yet another uh, sort of benchmark in, in the development of, of your career? Yeah, definitely. I learned so much through this process of our local elections, of how important it is and the, the things that matter to the people of Hawaii. And I think this will shape the way that I reach out for stories and cover news in the future. Um, you know, I was actually really nervous just heading into it because it's such a big deal and it's so important and you, and you want to be correct and you want to be accurate. You want to deliver the best information. I was telling my wife, it was like when I used to pitch, like before starts, I would have this huge thing of anxiety before I would pitch. And then once you throw the first pitch, that would all be gone. And then you just kind of do your job. And that's how it felt last night is it was just anxious all day, butterflies in my stomach could barely even eat. And then when I got out there and like you start talking to people, it, it all goes away and you just get in the zone. And so for me personally, um, it was a really good experience. And just as a broadcaster, you know, to, to be able to cover something as big as that and something as historic as all those people turning out. And then what happened at Honolulu Hale, um, that was something I'll remember forever. I do kind of want to get into that a little bit more uh, as far as, as your journey. Uh, you obviously found your way to the islands uh, pitching for the University of Hawaii. Give us a sense of that process of, of when it was decided that you were going to take your talents to the middle of the Pacific, so to speak. <laughs> uh, I was a junior in high school when I first started talking to uh, Coach Chad Kanishi. He's the pitching coach when I was at UH. And, uh, you know, he just sent me some recruiting mail, gave me a phone call. And I was like, oh, Hawaii, that's cool. I, I'd never been in my life. And um, I went and pitched at a tournament in Phoenix. And then, you know, he liked what he saw. And so he asked me to come out on a, a visit and check the place out. And then we, we came out. And uh, the first time I got to Hawaii, we went out to Waikiki. And we went out on um, one of the little jetties. And it was like, you know, you see all the fish and stuff like that. Which, if you're in Hawaii, you see that every day. It's not a big deal. But coming from New Mexico, right, in the middle of the desert, where we barely even have a river, it was like, what is this place? This is real life. Um, so I just fell in love right away, and that was it. And so I, you know, I ended up committing to play for Hawaii, and then I came out here, and the first semester was awesome, and I loved it. And as soon as I got done with school, it was like, okay, how can I stay here? Kanoa, Kanoa hooked me up with a job. So they, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, Sam. <laughs> I, I couldn't be more thankful because, honestly, I I'd studied uh, physical therapy at UH. It was, kinesiology was my major. And so um, – there's no physical therapy schools in the state of Hawaii. So after I was done with school, it was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to leave somewhere else. But then I ran into the job with KH1 with you guys. And so that was Yeah, it, it really worked out well, the timing of that. In all seriousness, uh, you know, Rob DeMello had obviously a huge hand in, in doing that and, and also in, in your development and just giving you that kind of experience. And, and here you are now finding yourself in an even larger and higher profile role. That said, I, I, I do kind of want to rewind it a little bit again to your playing days at UH. And what was it like playing for Mike Trapasso, especially as a pitcher, which is obviously something that is in his background and is of a, of a primary focus? It was awesome, especially as a left-handed pitcher, to be able to work with him. I, I don't think a lot of people know how good of a pitcher he was when he was at Oklahoma State. This was like a Golden Spikes Award finalist. Like, that guy knows everything there is to know about pitching. And you just look at the pitching development that comes from that program. Like he brings in, you know, pitchers who he sees uh, some talent in and he develops that, I think, to the maximum. And that's what he did with me. You know, I came in, I was 155, 160 pounds, throwing 84, 85 miles an hour. 
And then, uh, you know, he may be getting the weight room. He may be taking all these crazy, like 1200 calorie protein shakes. I put on like 50 pounds and then he got me throwing, you know, in the low nineties and it was all attributed to him and coach Chad Kanishi. Those guys were awesome. So I loved it. And not only that, it was just a, an awesome team dynamic that he built with us, you know, in the, the late 2000s and then 2010, you know, bringing in Colton Wong obviously was a huge thing for our program. So that was awesome as we get to play with Colton. And um, yeah, we had huge crowds at the less. Like it was, I honestly, those are some of the best times of my life. It, it was an incredible experience. Yeah, and then we, we definitely want to get to, to Colton here in a second, obviously coming off of uh, another gold glove award. But I just kind of wanted to ask you as well. I mean, from, from your time in professional baseball, playing in the Twins organization, what, what, what did you kind of take from that? And maybe that, that you have transferred over to your role now in broadcasting. Uh, I think the, the self-motivation, right? So when you're in college, everything is scheduled for you. All your time management is scheduled for you. You have to go to weights at this time. You have to do this at this time. When I got into pro ball, and, you know, I only spent two seasons in there, uh, it's all done on your own. It's like, okay, you're going to be as good as you want to be. And so I poured everything I could into developing myself into the best I could be. And that's – like one thing I look back on my baseball career is I took it to the absolute limit, I think, for my talents. Because I'm not, like, super athletic or anything. So it just – you know, I just worked really hard. And I think, you know, in this business, I, I kind of take that uh, athletic mentality to it in that, okay, I have to do these things – on this time, on this day. And I think the time management aspect, I think really helps me uh, just stay organized. And I think that's super important with work. Yeah, it's, it's definitely allowed you to, to climb up in there. Uh, so yeah, we did want to ask you about Colton, obviously a guy that, that you know well, having played with him, wins another gold glove, announced yesterday, Major League Baseball, just for whatever reason, choosing to announce their gold glove award winners right in the middle of this whole election seemed like a curious oh. decision. <laughs> Uh, what'd you make of the news Colton coming off of just being released basically his option not being picked up by the Cardinals which I think as we've learned is kind of just what everybody has done with everybody who's got an option at this point uh, just kind of the economics of baseball but uh, the the news that he wins his his second gold glove here yeah you know I was thinking yesterday like okay we're gonna get all the bad news dump on Tuesday that people don't want to get out there like Major League Baseball thought gold gloves were apparently like bad news that they didn't want anybody to hear about <laughs> Uh, but for Colton, man, I couldn't be more proud. And watching him as a freshman, you know, we used to, in practice, we used to test him because he was the big, you know, recruit coming in, like this big name. And when you come into an atmosphere where you have a team that's, you know, got a lot of older guys and veteran guys, which we did that year, um, I don't think guys liked having a freshman come in and supposed to be the man. And so we used to test him in practice. You know, we would go after him. I think I knocked him down with pitches a couple times in inter-squad games. But then he would come back and, like, hit singles and triples. And he had, he had a home run off of one of my teammates, Jesse Moore, that went, like, three-quarters of the way up one of those right field uh, light poles at Lesbian Tommy Stadium. So, like, we knew right away this guy's for real. And back then, he used to play center field. And he's the best defensive center fielder that I've ever played with. And keep in mind, you know, when I was in with the Twins organization, Aaron Hicks was our center fielder when I was in Beloit, Wisconsin. You know, the star center fielder for the Yankees, incredible outfielder. But Colton was just on another level. And you can see some of the highlights, you know, Canola with your, your dad calling him running into the wall in center field and making a catch. And he, he, like, breaks his face and destroys his sunglasses and stuff like that. He was just an awesome center fielder. And then he moves into the infield his sophomore year. And Coach Trapasso is his infield coach. And he was always our infield coach. And he's an incredible infield coach, which is crazy in the baseball world because he's a former left-handed pitcher. <laughs> he's not a very athletic dude either. But for some reason, <laughs> he knows how to coach infield. And he's an incredible infield coach. And that's where it started. And you saw Colton go from this guy who was a catcher in high school, center fielder his freshman year at UH, to this wizard of a second baseman. And it didn't happen right away. It was hard work. And Colton put in so much work that offseason um, to get to the point where he was playable at second base his sophomore year. And then he became a stud. And then he was, he was the man. And then it went from there to where, you know, he got drafted because of his bat. And now he's a two-time gold glove winner. Like this is – what a crazy story in player development this is. And this is all based on Colton's hard work. Well, what's funny is it was just a few months ago you guys actually celebrated the 10-year anniversary of that 2010 WAC championship team. And that was a, a year where down the stretch, Colton just kind of put the cape on and, and helped to kind of carry this team. You had some very memorable outings that season as well. But what do you recall about Colton and, and sort of those heroics when it mattered the most down the stretch there? 
Yeah, so there was one game. It was the first game in the WAC tournament against Louisiana Tech. And this was a big revenge game for us. So uh, I'm going to preface this by saying, so in 2009, we hosted the WAC tournament, and uh, we played Louisiana Tech in the first game. And we were the road team because we were the lower seed. And so I came in for the save, and I was throwing in the ninth, and there was a runner on base, and I gave him a walk. We were leading three to two. I gave him a walk-off two-run home run. And so the next year, playing Louisiana Tech in the first round, and Colton had hit a home run, I think it's to make it a one-run game. And then, no, he hit a home run to tie it up. I think he was in like the seventh or something like that. Colton comes up in the ninth, and we're the home team, and he's got a runner on base, and their coach, Wade Seminole, makes a mound visit and tells the pitcher, do not give him anything to hit, like nothing. We're not going to intentionally walk him, just do not give him anything to hit. And I think it was like a first or second pitch breaking ball that was hung right in the zone, and Colton hit it out, walk-off, <laughs> two-run home run. So it was the sweetest revenge ever, especially for me, because I gave up that walk-off home run. So it was nice, uh, nice to see that, and then – I think I still have the record of like, is any UH pitcher ever going to give up a walk-off home run at Lesbury County Stadium? So I think I'll have that record forever. Um, but Colton, yeah. And then it sparked our whole offense. And after that, our offense erupted and they led us to the WAC championship in that tournament, which was, man, that was, I, it's, it's a bummer that it wasn't the year before where it was at Lesbury County Stadium because that would have been such an epic uh, UH sports moment. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that it's been 10 years, right? I mean, time flies, but it was such a fantastic and memorable season for that program. Um, and it's funny because baseball has gone through this extreme evolution, even in the last 10 years. And especially, I think, from the vantage point of the position you played as a pitcher. Uh, and we saw it on full display in that clinching game for the Dodgers against the Rays. And you have manager Kevin Cash who comes out and makes a pitching change that has been much maligned because it was based on certain analytics and stats uh, and perhaps not as much on gut and gut feel and that kind of eye test decision-making. Uh, I'm curious to know what your opinion of that is of that evolution and that influx of analytics in professional baseball well how much time do we have because i got a ted talk about this so <laughs> i brought some go notes. for it we're muting our microphones right now go for it I, I, I came prepared for this so i think there's a few different layers on this whole decision which was you know it was fun it was fun to talk about for baseball but it was it just hurt so bad as a pitcher to watch what happened um this is looked at as a battle of analytics versus gut. And on the surface, it makes sense because this was the Rays using their analytics. But I think when you dive deeper into it, even the analytics said to leave Blake Snell in that game to face Mookie Betts, right? And so I'm going to take a, a couple stats that I saw on Twitter. I didn't come up with these. I'm not giving scouting reports or anything like that. But Blake Snell, the, the Rays' logic was third time through the order. We don't want to – have our pitchers go out there because then the, the statistics don't back up them having success. Actually, Blake Snell, it's the second time through the order throughout 2020 and 2019 where he had his roughest times. And then the third time through the order, he actually pitched a lot better than the second time through the order. And then Mookie Betts was almost the exact opposite to where he, and that was the, the batter that Blake Snell was pulled before pitching against, right? So Mookie Betts had struggled his third time facing a pitcher, both in 2019 and 2020. So it kind of eliminates that, that argument, right? And then you look at it against left-handed pitching. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. Mookie Betts versus lefties. His OPS in 2019 was 531. That's on-base plus slugging percentage, which is probably the most important stat in baseball. Against right-handed pitching, it was 1,061, so 1.061. So that's a, he's almost two times as good a hitter against right-handed pitchers, which the Rays brought in as left-handed pitchers, right? And you can see fastballs and breaking balls, it's the same thing for lefty and righty. So I think that lefty-righty matchup is where the analytics should have really came into play. And then you look at it from a gut standpoint. And Canole, we had been texting back and forth a little bit during the game. What Blake Snell was doing is usually his out pitch is he sets hitters up to work off of this high fastball. It's, you know, 97 miles an hour. And he uses this electric breaking ball off of it because they come out of the same arm slot and it looks like the same pitch. And then the last second that curveball dies off, a lot of hitters can't pick it up, especially with two strikes. And what he was doing is he was using that sometimes, and especially against Mookie Betts, he used it a few times, but then he was working off of that when he would get to a leverage count, one, two, oh, two count, he would use his fastball away, which the Dodgers weren't anticipating because they didn't see that in a game two or whatever it was he pitched. And then he was working the slider off of that. So it's the same arm slot on those pitches. 
but you know, a completely different level and a completely different part of the strike zone that he was pitching to. Now he was using that and the Dodgers hitters had no idea what to do with it. And so later in the game, he could have gone back to the high fastball breaking ball to offset what he was doing in the middle innings to completely throw them off their game again. So when you look at a pitcher, it's not necessarily just, okay, this guy's thrown this many pitches. This guy's faced these guys this many times. It's how has he done it? How has he attacked these hitters? What game plan does he still have left to give them? Right? So it's kind of like in football, if you've shown your entire playbook within the first quarter, then you don't have much left. But Blake Snell had an entire playbook to give these guys at 74 pitches. And so that's what really killed me is as a manager, you have to be able to pick those things up and see what your guy's doing out there on the mound. And I don't know what happened to Kevin Cash. He just, he didn't see it apparently. Yeah, it, it was amazing. The thing that, that riled me up the most was he said, oh, this wasn't, this wasn't planned. He just kind of, it was in the moment. It's like, how do you, what do you mean it wasn't planned? And it's worse. It's a worse decision to me uh, because he, he wasn't paying attention. It seemed like, you know, on the flip side, the Dodgers take advantage of that move. They close out the series. Uh, 60 game regular season. They were really good. 43 and 17. They make it through this extended postseason. Uh, is it a devalued championship? Do you buy into any of that? Clayton Kershaw, a lot of people talking about redemption. The haters will say that he didn't have it, you know, the wear and tear of a usual season. That's why he didn't fade out in the playoffs this year. But, but how, how'd you view it as a baseball guy? As a Giants fan, Keep in mind, I thought it was completely legitimate. I thought they were by far the best team in baseball, and I thought the right team won. You know what I mean? Like, I disagree with the Kevin Cash decision. I think that could have changed the outcome of that game. The Dodgers were the better team, and they were the best-built team in baseball. And it's the front office there, I mean, just from drafting, scouting, um, the way they designed their contracts, and then the trade they made for Mookie Betts, I just can't think of a, a better roster that's compiled in all of sports right now, really. It, it's just – it's kind of like the – you know, the Warriors, when they added Kevin Durant, like you had this juggernaut of a team and then you um, trade for Mookie Betts. Like it, it was just, it was a masterful build to that roster. And, and really, you know, even as a Giants fan, you, you can't look at it and dislike that team. It's a fun team to root for. Um, I wasn't rooting for them, but it, it was just, you know, a bunch of, of really fun baseball players to watch. And the athleticism, you know, Cody Bellinger is a lot of fun to watch. Mookie Betts, Major League Baseball is doing a huge disservice by not creating that guy into a superstar. They got to get him on commercials. Like they got to push that guy to, to get him to be a superstar because he's the, the best chance baseball has to create a, a legitimate superstar, which they really don't have right now. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, as a Giants fan, it hurt to watch them win, but I just loved watching that Dodgers team because it was such fantastic baseball. And Clayton Kershaw, I thought was great in the playoffs. And I've been critical of his performances in the past, but you can't say anything about it. He, he was nails. As, as Sorry, Jordan. As, as a Giants fan, uh, you've kind of thrown this question out there. I always found it interesting, you know, going back to the rivalry between Kershaw and Madison Bumgarner. And you were like, whose career would you rather have, Mad Bum or, or Clayton Kershaw? The, you know, World Series MVP that, that Bumgarner has, the multiple World Series titles, or up to this point, at least prior to this abridged season, um, the, the, the non-championship career of Clayton Kershaw, but all those Cy Youngs and, and league MVPs. Would your answer to that question change now in hindsight after the Dodgers won this World Series? That's such a great question. I've actually been pondering, and I think so. You know, when you look at Madison Bumgarner's career, uh, he's really struggled, especially of late in the regular season. And he had some great regular seasons when he was on top of his game with the Giants. But, you know, I don't think he won a game this year for Arizona. And Clayton Kershaw still, you know, at the age of 33 with all those innings, still pitching really well. And he finally got that title. And he was a big part of it. It wasn't like he was, you know, over the hill and it was like a, you know, Gary Payton chasing a ring type of thing, Carmelo chasing a ring type of thing. Like he was a centerpiece and he was probably their second best pitcher in the World Series behind Walker Bueller. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I used to think just to have those dominant playoff performances that Madison Bogumgarner had. And of course I'm biased as a Giants fan. That, that would have been such a, a fun career to have. But when you look at the totality of what Clayton Kershaw has done, I think it tips the, the scales in his favor with this world series championship that he was a huge part of. Yeah. And I just got one, one more, Sam, uh, I kind of wanted to circle back to Colton. We, we sort of touched on that, you know, his option wasn't picked up. He can sign anywhere now. Uh, do you have any sort of inkling as to where you might, where we might see him land? Um, you know, he's, he's got a few, uh, places he's going to go meet with. I don't want to divulge them just yet, but let's just say, Jordan, you, you might enjoy one of them. <laughs> that's what I want. That's why I asked him. That's what I wanted to hear. That's all. I'm good. 
we'll see. He'll have plenty of options. It's just, it's such a junk time to be a free agent, right? Like you have this crazy pandemic shortened season that they don't get any revenue from the, the ticket sales. So all these teams are either losing money or major league baseball is going to make it look like they're using money with some creative accounting. So they don't have to pay very big salaries. So they might do a little bit of both. Um, it'd be interesting to see, but he'll, you know, he's still going to be a millionaire and playing baseball. So I don't think we should cry for him, but it's just, <laughs> not going to get as much money as he should. <laughs> uh, Sam, we appreciate it, man. Uh, this was a lot of fun. We could talk to you for hours. Um, I hope you figure out a way to get some kind of sleep here in the near future uh, because there's uh, much more work ahead of you for sure. Thank you guys so much. And I love the podcast. You guys, this is my favorite podcast. So this is like a dream come true. I always listen to you guys, you know, like walking my dogs or walking my son around the park and stuff like that. So thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Oh yeah. You're really going to love this next episode that we post in the next <laughs> yeah, few hours. Like <laughs> no, it's, it's been our pleasure, man. Always, always good fun talking with you and we'll, we'll do it again, bro. All right. Sounds good. Thanks you guys. Thanks, Sam. All right, time now for our post-game best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial, construction, and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right, you got something for me on your best for this episode of the pod? Yeah, my best. I'm going to go to Washington State in the Palouse, going to be starting Jaden Delora at quarterback this weekend in their season opener. Nick Rolovich making the announcement this week after some reports had, had sort of led uh, the public to believe that. It, St. Louis has had this ridiculous run of quarterbacks going back like 30-plus years now, I mean, even <laughs> beyond that. And, and uh, you know, this isn't even mentioning the Darno Arsenals and Jeremiah Masolis and Marcus Mariotas and, and Jason Gessers, like all of those guys. But the, just the last three, just the last three that St. Louis has had start at quarterback for them, Three years of Tua Tango-Vailoa, who's now starting in the NFL. A year of Chevin Cordero, who's now the full-time quarterback as the starter at the University of Hawaii. And then two years of Jaden Delora, who is now going to be the starter as a true freshman at Washington State. Like, the embarrassment of riches, man, and how well they developed these guys. Vince Pass is a, is a guest we have had on this show. Uh, just just incredible. Like, that's the last six years of quarterbacks that St. Louis has had. <laughs> that's, that's unreal. All right, my best is going to be something that uh, is along the same lines. Announcer Joe Tessitore, his son John is a punter and kicker for Boston College, so we mentioned the Clemson game. His son John made a key play for the Eagles early in the game where he rushed from his holder spot on an apparent field goal attempt to under center and thus the quarterback position, drawing the Tigers offsides and extending a drive that would ultimately give Boston College a 28-10 lead. They would lose that game, unfortunately. But on the call was Joe Tess himself. And I imagine it must have been how Barry Helley felt on his MIL broadcasts as his son Jordan at quarterback was leading Baldwin to league titles and state tournaments. It's just kind of cool to see the announcer being able to have those moments, getting excited about a play made uh, by one of their offspring. So uh, I imagine Barry Helley can relate a lot to Joe Tess on that front. Yeah, I'm sure he has. Uh, I've, I've held a few field goals uh, in my day uh, <laughs> as well, the games that I think he was calling. But, yeah, cool cool for the Tessators. And Boston College almost won the game. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, Clemson kind of took control in the second half, but they were right in it. We get to our worst. We'll end on the bad notes. What's your worst? Yeah, my, mine is more comical. I figured, you know, hey, we all could use a little laugh. Uh, I mentioned this when we were filling in on Bobby Curran's show last week, but this was too good not to sort of immortalize on the podcast. Inverness Caledonian Thistle, top flight club in, in Scotland. Or excuse me, in Scotland. They've gone to empty crowds there in Scotland. We all know social distancing and everything like that. Uh, and to save some money as well, they went to a mobile camera that was controlled to broadcast the game to season ticket holders via the internet. Uh, and not only is it camera person less, it is also using AI. So it's not a remote control. It's not like somebody sitting at a computer moving the camera. It is artificial intelligence where the camera pans based on where the ball is. So it just follows the ball left to right. The only problem is they didn't anticipate for the near side linesman to have a bald head. He's got like a shiny bald head. And so the camera kept screwing up and following the linesman because they thought it was the ball. And they, a whole bunch of action got missed. The club had to apologize to their season ticket holders. It was a big hoot online. Uh, but, yeah, sometimes uh, good ideas. They don't quite work out. Unintended, unintended hiccups. Like a bald linesman whose back of his head looked like the soccer ball. 
Yeah, amazing, right? That kind of technology that we have at our disposal in this day and age, this modern time, and yet it is thwarted by the fact that we also have not figured out a way to ultimately cure baldness. Uh, really, really funny stuff. That's a good one. All right, my worst is a little more sobering. Uh, Ronnie Stanley, the all-pro left tackle for the Ravens, suffered a season-ending ankle injury this past Sunday against the Steelers, and this came just days after becoming the highest-paid offensive lineman of all time in the NFL. Now, he is a former Polynesian Bowl honorary captain. He's a Polynesian football hall of fame player of the year winner previously his mom is of tongan ancestry he signed a five-year 98 million dollar extension so i guess the good news is he signed that contract and so he's going to make the guaranteed money off of that deal regardless uh but it just really stinks that you go from that high right and that level of validation to then the low of, of suffering a season-ending injury. It, all, it obviously also uh, hurts the uh, Ravens and Lamar Jackson. Yeah, that was my worst. It was just just really, really uh, bummer timing there for Ronnie Stanley. Yeah, it really is. He, he is very much deserving of that contract. Dude is an absolute beast on the offensive line, One, arguably the best guy in the league and, and getting paid like it. Yeah, and by all accounts, a really, really good individual as well. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui Owned, Maui Operated for Maui's People. Thanks once again to Sam Spangler for joining us. You can hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at TalkSports808. Jordan, we'll do it again soon, bro. See you guys.